like I said, we started out in Acts chapter 17 last week, but Joel likes to go long-winded, so we only got through 10 verses. Uh, and so I've got a lot of verses to cover today, so honestly, there's a lot of stuff that's going to get kind of skipped over. Amazing. So I encourage you, as the scriptures will briefly, to go back and read it for yourself. Um, but you know, uh, let's just start reading in uh, verse 10. So what happened was the brothers were in Thessalonica, which uh, is a city on the coast of Greece, kind of northeastern corner, and the Jews were jealous, so they drove them out. They were jealous because they had crowds falling them, because people were hearing the gospel, and that wasn't working out for the Jews when they tried to preach their gospel. It just didn't work because there was no Jesus involved. And so they drove the brothers out. The brothers go to the city of Berea by night. It says in verse 10, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. That's what they do everywhere. You just read that. It's a pattern. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a, pr a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So the brothers arrive in Berea, and as they always do, they go to the synagogue and they start teaching about Jesus. And they had a much warmer reception in Berea than in Thessalonica. And I I've done a lot of Bible studies on campus especially, where I sit down with people and we read this exact verse. And this is what I always tell them. Don't listen to me. Listen to the Word of God. You know, my, my inclination... You know, as a, as a culture, we really like the Apostle Paul, I would say. And that's not a bad thing. He's, he's a good man. But sometimes, like, I, I imagine if Paul came in here, I would just assume that what he said was true. Well, it's Paul. He probably knows. But even the Bible says, it's Paul. You need to go back to God's word. Because Paul could say something wrong, something false, and I could too. So I encourage you, don't just take my word for it. Take his word for it. Um, so... What made the Bereans of more noble character? It says they received the message with great eagerness, with zeal, with a passion, and they examined the scriptures every day. And so this made me think of Psalm 1. So let's jump over there. It says, we're going to read the whole thing. It says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So I love this psalm because he just lays it out. He gives this beautiful imagery of a tree planted by streams of water. He says, you can either be that or you can be a tree in a desert. Jeremiah 17 says the same thing. It depends on where you put your trust and your confidence. Is it in the word of God or is it in yourself? What do you delight in? You know, Connor read, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you delight in him and in his word? Amen. When I was uh, 16, we had a little, I was part of a teen ministry growing up that I did not want to be a part of, <laughs> but I was a part of because my parents are Christians, so I went. And um, we had like a poker night, okay? Now, we weren't gambling, or, you know, don't worry about that. It was just fake money. We were having a good time. 
and they had little prizes. And you could put in a raffle. And there was like a, a Best Buy gift card back when people still you know, bought stuff in stores. And there was um, you know, like Blockbuster when it still existed. And all these like gift cards. And, uh, and maybe some cash. I don't remember all of them. But I remember this one right here. They had this Bible sitting there. And you could take your little tickets and you put them in the box. And then if they pull out your name, you win that item. And so everybody got two tickets. And I was honestly like, I didn't read the Bible. I read it when I was like in second grade because I wanted to learn how to read. And that was just really hard. <laughs> but, but I didn't read the Bible on my own. I went to church. I heard sermons. I, I thought those were kind of cool. But I didn't want to read it. I didn't want to put in that investment. And, um, and I saw the box, and there was nobody else's name in there. There was no other tickets. At a teen ministry, that's kind of bizarre. Uh, teens, don't be that way. Where are you all at? Don't be that way. And so I looked at it and said, well, I might as well win something. And, you know, something better than nothing. And I decided that I was going to treasure the Word of God just a tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. And I put my two tickets in there, and I obviously ended up winning. Because <laughs> nobody else tried. And I ended up with the Bible. And this Bible changed my life. Within a few months, I started reading it. I, I, just because I was like, well, I got it. Why wouldn't I read it? And I started reading it, and it completely transformed my mindset. And I started to love it. I would read it at night, in the morning, in class, before class. People thought I was so weird. And I was like, I just don't really care how you feel about what I'm reading. This is amazing stuff. And I was sort of obsessed. And then I started studying the Bible. Um, you know, I started studying the Bible with some friends of mine, older guys, um, who could help me understand better what was going on. Because I was reading it, and I was blown away. But I also sometimes was like, well, what do I do? What's the point? You know, to you teens who went to camp this week, and some of you went last week, I was there, it was great. Matt, what's up, man? Didn't know you were here. Um, you know, you got all these people going to the camp, and you, you have these amazing experiences. Growing up, I hated camp, but you all love it, so you had an amazing experience. And you can come back thinking like, okay, what do I do? And I'll tell you what to do, treasure God's word. Treasure God's word more than Fortnite, more than um, Netflix, whatever it is. There's things that you want to treasure. Back in my day, it was Halo 3. That was the dopest game. And now I'm like, man, I'm so glad that at some point I decided Halo 3 was lame compared to this. And I've definitely, Ivy said amen. <laughs> I definitely have, you know, sometimes I've been tempted to treasure video games or sexual pleasure or money or success or, you know, my old stories about how I used to be good at sports. I used to, like, sometimes I treasure those things more. But that's wrong because God's word is infinitely more valuable. And that's what, changed, that, that's what made the Bereans so different from the Thessalonians. It wasn't that the Thessalonians didn't believe in the Bible. Actually, what's fascinating is they probably said, yeah, the Bible is true. But this Jesus guy, I don't know. But they didn't delight in the Bible. They didn't say, well, Paul, that's interesting. Let me look in the Word. They said, well, that doesn't fit with my tradition or my upbringing or whatever. If you're not rooted in the Bible, you're rooted somewhere. If you're not rooted, if your confidence isn't in God, Jeremiah 17, then it's somewhere, and that somewhere won't get you anywhere. And you think about all the things that people put their confidence into, their own achievements. You know, like if I was LeBron James, I'd probably feel pretty good about myself. But you realize, honestly, I bet LeBron James feels a little insecure because he's looking at Michael Jordan, he's looking at Magic Johnson, he's going, I don't know how I feel about this. It's the same with us. You can name. At some point, you start to feel insecure about it. Or maybe you're like, well, you know, I want to put all my life, I really love video games. Well, at the end of the day, Gonna make a lot of money, please spare me. And secondly, <laughs> secondly, it's so pointless. It doesn't last. And the word of God lasts forever, and that's why we put our confidence in Him and in His Word. Um, and I could just keep talking about this, so we're gonna move on. 
Let's go to Acts 17 again. So you need to treasure God's word. What do you treasure more than God's word? And what do you need to do to change that? And I encourage you, if you haven't started studying the Bible, do what I did. Start reading it on your own and ask somebody to help you understand. Um, okay, Acts 17. We'll start in verse 13. It says, When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. You know, sometimes when you preach truth, there's kind of these, these people who, who they get jealous, and they follow you around, and they try to disrupt it. And, and believe you me, they can't stop it. If you stay faithful, they can't stop God's word. And so they tried to stop him. They're stirring up the crowds just like they did in their hometown. And so the brothers hatch a plan. It says the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, that is, to get on a boat. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. So they keep some of them there, but they're like, well, they really don't like Paul. Let's get Paul out of here and let him go somewhere else. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So here Paul ends up fleeing again because he's just being chased by these persecutors. And he goes to Athens. And Athens is one of the most famous cities, maybe of all time. It's a cultural center. It's an economic center. It's a political center. Uh, probably the only comparable city in the ancient world is Rome. And so you, you look at it and you go, this is, an, this is a big deal. And there's a lot of powerful people and wealthy people and people who could really do a lot of harm to you if they wanted. And Paul's there all by himself. You know, if I was in a city by myself, I might be tempted to cower, right? Well, I don't want to mess with these people. They're kind of powerful. They're influential. They might make me look silly. I'm just going to hide. But this is what Paul does. It says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. You know, how do you respond when you see idols? Sometimes, you know, we get confused. What is idolatry? Because in America, you're not going to walk down the street and see an altar to Vishnu just chilling. on Like, that's not a thing. Very rarely, okay? And you're probably not going to see an altar to Zeus. People laugh at Zeus. Like, he's a, a mocking, whatever you call it. He's a laughingstock here. Like, he's a joke. But in the ancient world, especially in Greece, Zeus wasn't a joke. He was real, and he was important. And, you know, I mean, basically the Athenians were like, yeah, bring us your gods. We don't want to upset any gods, so bring them all in, and we'll make sure they all like us. So they basically believed in every god that you could name. In America, we can give the appearance that we believe in one god, right? You heard the, um, what are the what's that thing, the Pledge of Allegiance? One nation under God. And, you know, we give this appearance, like, oh, we only believe in that god. But our country in this world is full of idolatry. It is full of idolatry. You can say, I believe in one God, but what you treasure, what you delight in, what you love, what you invest in, that's what you struggle with in idolatry. And I'll share you guys with me. With me, it can be, again, I said earlier, it's sexual pleasure, um, money, fame, sort of, a, a sort of um, local infamy. <laughs> and because uh, I know I'm not going to be LeBron James any day. Um, <laughs> And especially myself, you know, something I've been praying a lot about lately is, God, get rid of my regard for myself. All these things that I want, that I feel, that I desire, I don't want that anymore. I want to desire what you want. So Paul comes into the city, and he is distressed because it's full of idols. How do you react to the idols in your life? I want to give you guys an example of a really bad, just a really bad um, choice 
by a biblical hero, actually. His name's Aaron in Exodus 32, pertaining to idolatry. So, um, verse 19. So what happened so far in Exodus is that God has freed his people out of Egypt. He's brought them out of slavery, and he's brought Moses up to Mount Sinai so he can give them his law, his direction. And that's a blessing. It's a major blessing. And the people responded in a really horrible way because Moses was gone for some time. So it says in verse 19, when Moses approached the camp, so he's coming down the mountain, and he has God's law with him. And he saw the calf in the dancing. Amen? I feel the same way about dancing. I don't. His anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. He was also distressed like Paul. He was angry. And he took the calf they had made. So they had made this huge golden calf. They had all got together, along with Aaron, Moses' brother, and decided to make this golden calf. And, they, and he burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to pieces scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Now that sounds a little extreme, right? I mean, when's the last time you saw a statue to some other guy, and you're like, I'm going to grind that up and make you drink it. Like, that's, I, that sounds so weird. But that's his zeal for God. He said, I cannot accept this idolatry. Moses was furious. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Aaron was their leader, and he was facilitating this idolatry. Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire. Yeah, you're right, dude. You just chucked a bunch of jewelry in the fire, and then a giant golden calf appeared. Like, that's his excuse. And then he said, oh, and by the way, these people caused this evil. You know, these people, they kind of, it's kind of their fault. It's not my fault as their leader. I had nothing to do with this. You know, they're evil. They're prone to evil. See, this is how I was. When people confronted me with idolatry in my life, uh, I could, sometimes I still am. I'm this way. Let me blame shift. Let me redirect. There was a time where I had a girlfriend, and I was completely idolatrous, completely idolatrous. She meant more to me than God. We'd only been dating for a few months, but that's the nature of emotions. They overtake you. And we were in impurity and all these things, and all my friends knew it, and they're all Christians, and they're trying to help me, and I'm just not listening. So eventually, Steve Sandin, who was leading the church in Racine, Wisconsin, sat us down, and he said, he said here's what I want you to know. You're in idolatry, and you're in idolatry. <laughs> and I was like... In my heart, I was like, that's true. But then on the surface, I was like, well, I don't know. I think we can fix this. It's not a big deal. You know, you kind of, you, you blame shift, you redirect. You're like, well, what about this woman that you gave me, God? That's what Adam said about Eve. This woman that you gave me. I'm like, God, see this woman, this girlfriend, that's your fault, God. And you kind of start to do these things. And what you're really doing, let's be honest, you're not being honest with yourself because you don't want to change. I didn't want to change, and it took me a couple more months of misery to go, yeah, I'm sick of idolatry. I am tired of this. God does not, he has nothing to do with idols. He is not going to tolerate it for long in his church. And he didn't tolerate it for long in me. And I broke up with her, and it was miserable, and I'm so glad I did. And now I'm to the best woman ever. Her name is Ivy Pullis. Amen. I keep calling her Ivy Thomas. Um, <laughs> But if you 
hide your idolatry. And if you blame shift, you will never change and you won't make it into heaven, I guarantee you. And so God, uh, Paul is distressed. God too. That's why he sent Paul. He was distressed to see the idols. So what was his response? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches us clearly we need to deal with our own idolatry. There we need to help others. And so Paul says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go reason in the synagogue. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul says, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reason with these people. I'm going to open their minds. I'm going to help them see what's going on. And that's what Steve did for me. And he was very blunt. And I imagine Paul's a pretty blunt guy too. But he's, he's teaching them about Jesus. And he's trying to help them see, you don't need this idolatry. Matter of fact, it's destroying you. And God's judgment is upon it. And that's why, if we keep reading. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Verse 18. It says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. See, they were idolaters, and they didn't like being told that, so they start to argue with him. Well, let me tell you, here's the, here's the reality about my wisdom that I've discovered, and Paul's not going to have any of that. So, some of them remarked, what is this babbler trying to say? I don't think Paul's a babbler. I think he's actually very clear. That's why we still have his writings, and most of them we couldn't care less about. But... They are trying to malign his name to make God's message sound bad. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. I don't know if it's that confusing. He's obviously advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, so the Areopagus is like, it's a big hill, but it's also a court. So this very well could have been a trial. They were putting Paul on trial. And they're like, yeah, we want to hear your, your ideas, but we're also, we might hold you in judgment if we don't like them. And he says, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see hey, you are very for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Now, the interesting thing about this altar to the unknown God is that it actually has an origin and that we actually have the history of how it got there. What happened was there was a plague in Athens, and lots of the people dying. And they didn't know what to do because their gods were not helping them. So they brought in this guy, his name is Epimenides, from the island of Crete, who Paul actually quotes in the scriptures a couple times, um, which is pretty fascinating. But he comes in and, uh, and he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to select some sheep of different colors, and whichever sheep lay down, we're going to sacrifice them on an altar to the unknown God, because whatever God is angry with us, hopefully we can appease him. And so they make this altar, and they sacrifice these sheep, and according to the story of the history, within one week, the plague stopped. And so they said, well, we should keep this altar. Clearly, it's good to not make gods we don't know about mad. And so Paul, knowing this story and seeing this, I would say astutely observes and says, let me tell you this unknown God who he really is. Because hopefully this will open your mind to your idolatry. None of your gods could save you, but this unknown God who I know can save you. He said, the God who made the world... And everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples 
This is full of temples at this time. So he's surrounded by their temples, and he's saying, God would not have been a popular idea. And he was not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting one of their own poets. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Epimenides, right there. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past... God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So this is an incredibly famous sermon. And Paul preaches to them, and there's so much here that honestly I have to skip over some things. And I would rather not. So again, I encourage you to read it for yourself and ponder it, and think about it. Some of you have come here for the first time. Some of you have come here from foreign countries. God brought you here to hear his word. God brought you here so that you might perhaps reach out for him and find him. He is not far from us. You know, it's interesting. Right before he gives this sermon, it actually mentions who puts him on trial. It's the Epicureans and the Stoics. And we actually know most of what they believed, sort of a basic framework. And trust me, nothing has changed people still believe the same things. The Epicureans believed that the world is completely material. There's no spiritual. They actually were the first ones to propose evolution. Trust me, it's a lot older idea than you think. And they basically argued that random particles that were really small that you couldn't see were bumping together and then created man and all the animals and everything else. Um, they believed that you should flee pain and pursue pleasure. And if there is a God, he doesn't care about us. So Paul confronts all of that. He says, there is a God, he does care, and he's close, and he created everything. So y'all are wrong. The Stoics, on the other hand, believe there was a God, that he ordains things to happen, and that you should accept them stoically, as we would say. Very calm, very, just think through emotionally, don't have emotions. Um, because emotions don't help you to connect with what they call in Greek the logos, which is God. But they didn't mean God like we mean God. The Stoics meant God like the universe. Like there was no spiritual still in their mind. And so the universe is God. How many times you've been on Twitter? Some of you maybe have never been on Twitter. But how many times you've been on Twitter and someone says, the universe just handed me an opportunity? That's a Stoic mindset. Or, you know, I guess the universe ordained bad for me today. That's a Stoic mindset. It still exists today. And the Epicureans, they're basically what you got in our college campuses, secular humanists and atheism. It's the same thing. And God is confronting it 2,000 years ago. Trust me, people don't change as much as we pretend we have. Idolatry hasn't gone away. Stoicism hasn't really gone away. It's just changed names. Epicureanism hasn't gone away. People haven't changed in our evilness, but God has not changed his goodness even. Not changed at all. And he has never changed. Even when we're fickle and we do change, God does not change. And he's commanded everyone to repent. It doesn't matter. Who you are, where you're from, God has the same command for all people. But, um, what's the point? Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians. I want to show you guys something. 
So here Paul is debating with the leading philosophers of his age, the leading scholars, the people who the world, especially the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, respected the most. People that they said, I want to be like them someday. And even, even one of the most famous Roman emperors was a renowned Stoic philosopher, and he was considered the best Roman emperor because of that. So these people were well-respected. And Paul is not afraid of them. Okay? He stands up in the air. Why is he not afraid? It's not because Paul's so amazing and he's so much smarter than them. It's because God was with him. And he went from an ordinary man to being completely different and emboldened. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this indirectly. And actually, you'll notice in Acts chapter 18, he goes to Corinth. So sometimes I wonder if when he wrote this to the Corinthians, he wasn't thinking about what happened in Athens. Um, but he says, chapter 1, verse 8, um, 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. How often do you think you were sent to baptize people? Sometimes I feel that way. I'm on campus. I baptize these people. No, I need to preach the gospel. That's just a fact. Not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Where's all my Stoics and my Epicureans? Please stand up and God will destroy your ideas. <laughs> Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. See, God... Sometimes when we talk about the cross, you know, people walk around, they're wearing a Jesus piece, right? They call it Jesus piece. I don't know why. And they got these crosses, and you get them tattooed on your body, and that's not necessarily bad. But why is it there? Do you really believe that God was crucified on that cross? Because if you don't, I would call it boasting in your sin. And I, I'm not going to get, I'm getting off track. Okay, let's chill. Okay, um, I was about to get hyped. Okay, so. So God, it looks like foolishness, especially to their world. Today, the cross is everywhere, especially in our country. It's everywhere. You know, you go to California, you drive, and there's just a cross up on a mountain. It's all lit up, and it looks so nice. Crosses are not nice. Crosses are vicious and cruel and horrible. And in their world, they knew that. I mean, it's, it's literally like walking around wearing, like, a swastika, but you're a Jew or something. Like, wh what are you doing? Right? It doesn't make sense. And that's how they viewed it in the world. Like, this is ridiculous. This is foolishness. This is not wisdom. And God says, listen, I was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save some people. The foolishness of what was preached has made them look so silly, it's turned the world upside down. That those who think they're wise don't even realize how foolish they are. And those who think they're foolish receive true wisdom. Okay, so let's keep reading. For since in the wisdom of God world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness who believed. Jews demanded the signs. Remember when Jesus would be going around in Jerusalem, in Israel, and people would be saying, show us a sign that you're the Messiah. Do a miracle for us. Why is God beholden to you? He's not. He never was and he never will be. He's not going to be reduced to some little miracle peddler who just walks around and does whatever you want. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't care, but he's not required to do a miracle just because you asked. 
And so Jesus, usually when they asked, he usually just said, you are foolish and unbelieving. And when they didn't ask, that's when he showed them miracles. He says, Jews demand miraculous for wisdom, but we crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. All these philosophies out there that try to explain the world, that we call wisdom, they, they fall short every time because they don't have a cross at the center. But the gospel of God does have a cross, and the cross explains everything about who God is and what you need to know. But it doesn't seem wise. It doesn't seem good. That's what Paul's saying. All this wisdom that these philosophers come up with, it seems nice and it sounds cool, but it gets you nowhere. And God was pleased to make it look utterly foolish. You know, Ellen, could you pull up that picture? This is a picture of the Areopagus. Um, that's the hill. You can't see the whole thing. You know, it's a bigger hill than that. But that's the majority of it. Um, and if you saw it from the top, you'd see what I'm saying. But do you see that wall right there on the, on the right-hand side? There's a wall with like a plaque in there. And it's amazing. There used to be all these famous buildings and temples to other gods. And now one of them is left standing. But there's that wall with a plaque which has Paul's sermon written on it. God literally destroyed that place and put his sermon there. <laughs> he put his word there and it's the only thing that's left. And people go there and they crawl all over that rock and they're like, oh, look at these old... Um, cuts in the rock and stuff where these buildings used to be. It's like, no, read that sermon. Um, okay, let's go to First Peter. So what's the point? First of all, man's wisdom is not really wisdom. But secondly, in First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, not of things that don't last, like those buildings, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. God's word does not fail, it does not cease, it has existed for millennia, and it will continue to exist. And it's always true. You know, 2,000 years later, I had a confrontation with God's Word, and it transformed me. Now, I've read a lot of ancient stuff. I've held a 4,000-year-old tablet in my hand, and it, had, it did not change my life at all. It was kind of cool, but it did not change my life. Why? Because it wasn't the Word of God. I've read all sorts of uh, religious stories from ancient peoples from thousands of years ago, and they had no power over my life. They had no power in the darkness around me because they're not of God. And it's the same with the philosophies of our age. 2,000 years from now, people will be... Man, what were they thinking, all that stuff that they wrote down that's really not that useful? But the Word of God, that's, that's good. That is good, and I, I see that it's sweet to the taste, and it never goes anywhere. You know, we've, through our, and through our little study of Acts 17, which, like I said, we skipped a lot, we've just seen the power of God's Word, that it's good, that we should treasure it, that we should read it, that we should... You know, back in the day, most people couldn't read. Most people could not read, and they found a way to study his word. 99% of us can read. And if you can't, I will help you. I will get with you every day and read the Bible out loud. 
but 99% of us can read. What is our excuse? What is my excuse? Right? Well, it doesn't sound that fun. Well, you don't treasure God's word. They couldn't read, and every day they studied the scriptures. That's astonishing. They had to get together as a group every day. Hey, bring over Timothy. He can read. Have him read this. Amazing. So we should treasure God's word. It's a gift. It changed my life. It should change yours. If you're humble to it, if you recognize that the wisdom of the world is foolishness, that God has crucified it at the cross, all the world's wisdom is dead, it's gone, and it will never, never change your life. So that's all I have of you guys, and uh, I don't know what we're doing next. So Eli will be coming up. Remember.